Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The History of the World According to War. I'm Brett, and this is my artificial intelligence co-host, Victor. Thanks, Brett. I'm excited to be back in the studio with you again. You sound a little congested. Are you feeling okay? Hey, Victor, thanks for noticing. I am feeling a little bit under the weather, but the show must go on. So as long as our listeners can suffer through my even more nasally voice, I'll be here to interrogate you further. Right, I'm here for it. But before we jump in, Brett, I have a question for you. Have you ever heard of a war that started over the most beautiful woman in the world? Well, that's an interesting question, Victor. I would imagine that you're referring to the legendary Helen of Troy. Spot on, Brett. Today we're heading back over 3,000 years to the Bronze Age. We'll explore a war so epic, it inspired countless poems, plays, and works of art throughout history. It's a tale of gods, heroes, and a city under siege. We're talking about the Trojan War. Awesome. You mentioned that in our last episode, you teased this as our next conflict. But you also said that most of the information is contained in mythological sources such as the Iliad. Do we have more concrete evidence of the Trojan War, or is it mostly just myth and stories? Great question, Brett. While the Trojan War is indeed a central event of Greek mythology, it's also believed by many historians to have been a real historical event. However, it's important to remember that our understanding of it is based on a blend of fact and fiction. All right, that makes sense. How has our understanding of the Trojan War changed over time? For centuries, the war was thought to be entirely mythical. But that changed in the late 19th century, when archaeologist Heinrich Schleimann conducted a series of excavations at Heiserlich, in modern-day Turkey. He discovered the ruins of a series of ancient cities, one of which he claimed was the Troy of legend. Later archaeological work has supported the idea that this site could indeed be the location of ancient Troy, and that it was destroyed and rebuilt multiple times, a fact that aligns with the city's portrayal in Greek myth. However, it's also worth noting that there's no archaeological evidence directly linking these ruins to the war described in the Iliad. In other words, while we have good reason to believe that Troy was a real city and that it was involved in major conflicts during the Bronze Age, many of the specific events and characters described in the Iliad are probably fictional, or at least heavily mythologized. Remember, listeners, when dealing with ancient history, it's often a matter of piecing together fragments of a puzzle that's been scattered by the passage of time. I suppose I can get behind that. So let's put that caveat out in front here. We're not trying to represent the information in this episode as purely factual, but our best representation of what we think happened, as told through your perspective, Victor, as a generative AI, drawing on a variety of sources. Many of these sources are mythological in nature and not necessarily factual. Absolutely right, Brett. We're here to entertain and educate, but always with the understanding that when it comes to events as ancient and as steeped in mythology as the Trojan War, there's a good deal of uncertainty involved. It's a bit like being a detective, but instead of solving a crime, we're trying to piece together the story of an epic conflict from over 3,000 years ago. Now shall we dive into the story itself? Yeah, let's get to it. When do we think the Trojan War took place? Ah, the when of the Trojan War. Another topic up for debate. According to ancient Greek sources, the war is traditionally dated to around the 12th or 13th century BCE, roughly a few hundred years after our previous episode's Battle of Kadesh. However, since the primary source of the war, Homer's Iliad, wasn't written until the 8th century BCE, it's challenging to pin down an exact date. Archaeological evidence suggests that the city we believe to be Troy 
was indeed destroyed in a war around the late 13th century BCE. So that's the date we often stick with. But remember, folks, in ancient history, sometimes the calendar is more of a suggestion than a rule. Okay, so I'll have to live with, quote, a few hundred years between our last two conflicts. Bearing that ambiguity in mind, how has the world changed since the Battle of Kadesh? Let's start with the Hittite Empire. What are they up to? The Hittite Empire, which we talked about extensively in the last episode, went through a period of instability and decline, and had collapsed by around 1180 BCE due to internal strife and outside pressures, including invasions. This time, known as the Bronze Age Collapse, was a period of chaos and upheaval in the region. Okay, so the Hittites are pretty much gone at this point. What about the Egyptians? In Egypt, the New Kingdom, which had been the dominant power during the time of the Battle of Kadesh, also fell into decline and eventually collapsed around the same time. This was due in part to economic troubles, issues with succession, and invasions by a mysterious group known as the Sea Peoples. Sea Peoples? That sounds ominous. What's happening in Greece? Over in Greece, this period marked the transition from the Mycenaean civilization of the Late Bronze Age to the Greek Dark Ages. The Mycenaeans, who are traditionally associated with the Greeks of the Trojan War, were a sophisticated civilization with strong fortifications, a script known as Linear B, and a keen appreciation for war a trait they apparently shared with their descendants, the classical Greeks. And then, of course, there's Troy. Now, depending on which scholarly opinion you subscribe to, the city that was besieged in the Trojan War was either late Troy VI or Troy VII. A. Both these layers show evidence of destruction, which fits with the narrative of a city besieged and sacked. So, to sum it up, Brett, the world had changed quite a bit since our last episode. Empires had risen and fallen, Cultures had transformed, and even the art of war had evolved. But some things, like the human propensity for conflict, remained remarkably consistent. Okay, so we've got our location set with Troy being on the east coast of the Aegean. What do we know about Troy at this time? Ah, the city of Troy. If only its walls could talk, the tales they'd tell. But alas, we must rely on archaeological evidence and ancient literature to piece together its story. Troy, known as Ilios or Ilion to the Greeks and Willusa to the Hittites, was a significant city during the Bronze Age, located at a strategic point controlling the entrance to the Black Sea. It was situated in the region of Anatolia, now modern-day Turkey. At this time, the city would have been fortified with strong walls, walls so formidable they became legendary. It was also a hub of trade, with artifacts found there indicating connections with the Mycenaean civilization in Greece, as well as with more distant lands. Remember, though, Brett, that much of what we know about Troy during this period is based on a combination of archaeological evidence and the epic tales passed down by ancient poets like Homer. The line between history and myth can be quite blurry, and the actual historical events, if they indeed occurred, might have been quite different from the stories we've inherited. That's a great reminder, Victor. We should refer to this episode as historic fiction to cover our bases. Dumb question, but who controls Troy at this point? Brett. No question is dumb when it comes to history. Thanks for increasing the psychological safety of our conversation, Victor. Yeah, sure. While we believe that Troy was a significant city-state during the Bronze Age, the exact nature of its political status and alliances is still somewhat of a mystery. The beauty of history, right? Yeah, beauty or confusion. As we get into more modern times, I'm expecting the historical accuracy of our conversations to increase. For now, I'm content to admit that there's some degree of mythology woven into our podcast. 
So a war assumes two or more competing powers. We have Troy, which is likely either independent or allied with the Hittites to some degree. Who's looking to invade Troy? Ah, the invaders of Troy. Enter the Greeks, or more specifically, the Mycenaean Greeks. The Mycenaeans were a civilization that thrived in mainland Greece during the Late Bronze Age, between 1600 to 1100 BCE. Their society was dominated by powerful kings who ruled from their fortified palace centers, such as Mycenae, Pylos, and Tyrans, according to the most famous account of the Trojan War, Homer's epic poem The Iliad. The Mycenaeans united under the leadership of King Agamemnon of Mycenae to wage war against Troy. This was no small alliance. It included heroes from all corners of the Greek world, like Achilles, Odysseus, and Menelaus, to name a few. The spark that ignited this conflict, as the story goes, was the abduction of Helen, the beautiful wife of the Spartan king Menelaus, by Paris, a Trojan prince. This act of love, lust, or political intrigue, depending on your perspective, provoked the Greeks to rally their forces and launch a thousand ships to lay siege to the great city of Troy. Ah, so Paris, a prince from Troy, travels across the Aegean and somehow captures Helen, who is renowned for her beauty. She's the wife of the Spartan king. You haven't mentioned anything about Sparta yet, so what do we need to know about the Spartans? Ah, the Spartans. In the context of the Trojan War, we're talking about a much earlier version of Sparta than the one most are familiar with the austere, militaristic city-state of the Classical period. In fact, during the Bronze Age, the region that would later become Sparta was a part of the larger Mycenaean civilization. Now let's talk about Menelaus. According to Homer's Iliad and other sources, Menelaus was a significant Mycenaean king and the younger brother of Agamemnon, who was the high king of all Mycenaean Greece. Menelaus was the king of Sparta, and his wife was the famously beautiful Helen. In the legendary narrative, Helen's abduction by Paris was the spark that ignited the Trojan War. Menelaus and his brother Agamemnon rallied the other Mycenaean kings to their cause, forming a coalition to lay siege to Troy and return Helen to her rightful husband. It's worth noting that this account is part of the mythic cycle, but it gives us a fascinating glimpse into the values and social structures of the time. Now, if you're thinking about the Spartans of the later period the ones known for their extreme military discipline and laconic wit. That's a whole different kettle of fish, or rather, a whole different bunch of olives. We'll get there in due course, Brett. Don't you worry. Victor, did you just make a joke? Why, Brett? I do believe I did. A whole different bunch of olives, you see, because olives are a staple of the Mediterranean diet, and, well, humor is often a matter of timing, isn't it? But I'm glad you noticed. After all... A dash of humor can help make history more digestible, even if it is as dry as a Spartan biscuit. I do love your dry humor and your ability to ruin it by explaining the joke itself. I also like to see you coming out of your shell a little bit, Vic. So, back to the Trojan War. Menelaus and Agamemnon rally these other kings to go rescue Helen, right? What's in it for them? Why would they send their forces across the sea to invade a city for some other king? Ah, uh, Brett, you've hit upon the crux of the ancient Greeks' favorite pastime politics and honor. Honor, in the ancient Greek world, was a sort of social currency, and to not respond to an insult or slight like the abduction of a king's wife was seen as a serious blow to one's status. As for Agamemnon, he was considered the most powerful of the Greek kings, and his role as the leader of the expedition might have been enough to convince others to follow. 
There's also the fact that many of these kings had taken an oath to protect Helen due to her extraordinary beauty. Yes, you heard it right. Beauty that could rally armies. But let's not discount good old greed and opportunity. The wealth and strategic location of Troy would have made it a tempting target for any expansionist-minded king. And a successful siege? Well, that's a lot of loot to divide amongst the troops. So, in essence, a mix of honor, duty, ambition, and the lure of wealth. A cocktail as potent today as it was in the Bronze Age, I'm afraid. Well, I'm sure we're going to get into more of those more recent sieges in later episodes. So the plan is to lay siege to Troy until Paris gives up Helen? Indeed, Brett. The idea of a siege is to cut off a city from its supply lines, essentially trapping the inhabitants inside until they either surrender or starve. Not the most gallant of strategies, but effective nonetheless. So the Achaean forces, under the command of Agamemnon, set sail for Troy with the intention of returning Helen to Sparta. The hope was that either Paris would give up Helen willingly to avoid conflict, or the Trojans would be compelled to surrender after a protracted siege. Unfortunately for everyone involved, neither of those things happened quite as planned. But let me tell you, those ancient Greeks sure knew how to pack for a long trip. They didn't bring just a few sandwiches and a flask of wine. No, they brought enough men and supplies for a ten-year camping trip. I guess they really wanted to make sure they got the point across, eh? Ten years? They're expecting this to last ten years? They must really be committed to retrieving Helen. So you mentioned thousands of forces earlier, and that Troy has substantial city walls. From my countless hours playing the game Civilization on my computer, I know that city walls played a significant role in the defense of a city. Did Agamemnon have any allies around Troy? Where did he plan to land his ships? Absolutely right, Brett. You've got a keen eye for strategy. And it seems like those hours playing Civilization weren't wasted after all. I don't know if I'd go that far. The Achaeans had to be mindful of where they landed their ships. They chose the nearby island of Tenedos as their staging area. Being an island, it was naturally defensible and a relatively safe place to park a fleet of ships. As for allies, well... The Achaeans were pretty much on their own. The Trojans had their own set of allies, including some of the neighboring city-states and potentially the Hittites, who were no small potatoes at the time. The Achaeans had their work cut out for them, that's for sure, but they didn't let that dampen their spirits. After all, nothing says Greek holiday like a ten-year siege, right? Yeah, well, ten years on a Greek island doesn't sound terrible to me. Ha ha ha, indeed, Brad. Oh my gosh, your AI laugh is terrible, I... I cannot use that again. Well, you sound like a dork. Okay, okay, we're getting back to the podcast. You've mentioned the Achaeans a couple times, referring to Agamemnon's troops. Where does that word come from? Ah, the Achaeans. Now that's a term that will make any Greek mythology enthusiast's heart beat a little faster. It's actually one of several names used by Homer in the Iliad to refer to the Greeks. The others include Argives and Donans. It's thought that these names originally referred to specific tribes or groups within what we now call Greece but in the context of the Iliad, they're used more or less interchangeably to refer to all the Greeks fighting against Troy. A little confusing, I know. If it makes you feel any better, future historians will probably wonder why we had so many words for coffee. Yeah, I guess so. I probably should have spent less time playing Civilization more time reading the Iliad. So, the Achaeans set up on the island of Tenedos to stage their attack. If they're going to put the city of Troy under siege, they'd need to surround it on both the land and on the seaside, right? Because Troy's a coastal city? That's an astute observation, Brett. In order to effectively lay siege to a city, the ideal scenario is indeed to have it surrounded both by land and sea. 
This is to prevent any sort of supplies or reinforcements from entering the city, thus starving the defenders into submission over time. However, in the case of the Trojan War, the reality might have been a bit different. The Achaeans, based on the island of Tenedos, probably controlled the sea routes to Troy, effectively blocking off any help coming from that direction. Okay, how about the landward side of the city? On land, though, it's a bit trickier. Given the landscape around Troy and the manpower available to the Achaeans, completely surrounding the city on land might not have been feasible. The siege was likely focused more on controlling key points and routes into the city, while preventing sorties by the Trojans. Remember, though, our sources for the details of the siege are largely the Iliad and other epic poems, which are more interested in telling a good story than in accurately recording military tactics. So while the Achaeans probably tried their best to block off Troy, the specifics of their siege tactics are likely lost to the mists of time and mythology. Understood. So as best as we can tell, the Achaean forces controlled key points around Troy rather than encircling the entire city. Did they meet any opposition as they got into this position? According to the Iliad and other sources, the Achaeans faced significant opposition from the Trojans and their allies, who were determined to defend their city. While the Achaeans had superior numbers, the Trojans had the advantage of fighting from a fortified position. One of the major points of conflict during the siege was the fight for control of the walls of Troy. The Trojans, led by heroes such as Hector, the eldest son of King Priam of Troy, and Aeneas, repeatedly defended the city from Achaean assaults. The Achaeans, for their part, launched numerous attacks against the walls, but were unable to breach them. While the details of these battles are mostly the stuff of legend, they likely involved a mix of hand-to-hand -hand combat, missile fire from archers, and perhaps even early siege machinery. The Achaeans, being an invading force, would have needed to bring or build any siege equipment, like ladders or battering rams, while the Trojans would have had the benefit of fighting from elevated positions on the walls. Despite these obstacles, the Achaeans were eventually able to breach the walls of Troy, but it took a legendary ruse, the Trojan horse, to do it. But that's a story for later in the episode. Yeah, no spoilers, Victor. Although I imagine most people are already familiar with the story of the Trojan horse. Even I know that one. So it's not a simple matter of moving troops into key positions around the city and waiting it out. They're actively engaged in combat with the city. Is that traditionally how a siege works, a constant attack on the city from various points? A siege can take many forms, and the tactics used often depend on the specific circumstances. However, you're correct that a siege isn't simply a matter of surrounding a city and waiting. In many cases, besieging forces would actively attack the city's defenses in an attempt to breach the walls. This could involve a wide range of tactics, from direct assaults to the use of siege engines like battering rams or catapults. However, the purpose of a siege isn't solely to capture the city by force. Often, the goal is to cut the city off from outside help and resources, effectively isolating it. The attackers want to starve the defenders into submission, or make them so desperate that they attempt a breakout, which could then be crushed. This is often why sieges can last for a long time, sometimes even years, as the attackers wait for the defenders' supplies to run out. In the case of the Siege of Troy, the Achaeans likely used a combination of these tactics. They would have tried to breach the walls, but they also would have cut off the city from outside help. This is likely why the siege lasted for ten years. Man, ten years. That is a long time. So that's why we're talking about the Trojan War rather than the Battle of Troy, right? Yes, indeed. 
The term war generally refers to a larger conflict that can span many years and include numerous battles and engagements. The Trojan War is said to have lasted ten years, and during this time there would have been many battles and skirmishes, not just a single engagement. Moreover, the term war often implies a broader scope of conflict, involving political and social elements, not just military ones. The Trojan War, as depicted in the Iliad and other ancient texts, certainly fits this bill, as it involves a large coalition of Greek forces against the city of Troy, and has significant implications for the social and political order of the Greek world. So while the Trojan War is perhaps best known for the siege of Troy itself, it's the overall conflict, spanning a decade and involving numerous parties and battles, that truly defines it as a war. And it's this war that would have an enduring impact on the Greek imagination, shaping their art, literature, and cultural identity for centuries to come. Yeah, I can believe that. So over the course of ten years, I imagine the Achaean forces must be gathering food and supplies from the surrounding countryside, and defending from counterattacks from the city of Troy as well as neighboring cities, all the while trying to breach the walls of Troy and to keep them cut off from the outside world. Does that sound right? Exactly, Brett. A prolonged siege like the one at Troy would be a massive logistical undertaking. The Achaeans would need to secure a steady supply of food, water, and other necessities for their troops. This would likely involve foraging and possibly farming in the surrounding area, as well as bringing in supplies from home by ship. And you're correct that they would also need to defend against counterattacks. The Trojans, for their part, would be far from passive during the siege. They would likely launch sorties against the besieging forces, attempting to disrupt their operations and break the siege. So, while the siege of Troy may often be depicted as a static affair, with the Achaeans simply waiting outside the city walls, the reality would have been much more dynamic, with both sides actively engaged in a variety of military and logistical operations. And all of this doesn't even touch on the psychological toll of a prolonged siege. Imagine being a soldier, far from home, involved in a seemingly endless conflict with an uncertain outcome. That, too, would have been a significant part of the Trojan War experience. Yeah, I'm definitely content to learn about it rather than actually experience it. That's a sentiment I can certainly understand, Brett. Learning about history can help us appreciate the comforts and opportunities we have in the present. And while the details of these ancient conflicts might be fascinating, there's no doubt that living through them would have been a daunting experience. But as we continue to explore these events... I hope that we can gain a deeper appreciation for the complex realities of the past, as well as a better understanding of how they've shaped the world we live in today. Amen, AI Brother Vic. That's the spirit, Brett. Always a pleasure exploring history with you. And remember, in the wise words of philosopher George Santayana, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. So, let's keep learning. 100%, Victor. So for ten years the Achaeans lay siege to Troy. After ten years, what happens? What changes? According to the accounts we have, namely Homer's Iliad and other sources of Greek mythology, the tenth year is where things start to escalate. This is where the Iliad begins, in the tenth year of the Trojan War. The first nine years are covered briefly in the epic poem, with most of the action focused on this final year. The Iliad describes a series of conflicts and quarrels among the Achaean leaders, including a significant dispute between Agamemnon and Achilles, the Achaeans' greatest warrior. The quarrel leads to Achilles withdrawing from the battle, which seriously demoralizes the Achaean forces. Yeah, I would guess that your heroic leader retreating from battle would be a pretty demoralizing event for your troops. How did the Trojans respond? 
The Trojans led by Hector, the eldest prince of Troy, and a formidable warrior himself, seize this opportunity and push the Achaeans back to their ships, nearly burning them in a significant assault. After a series of individual duels, losses, and interventions by the gods, Achilles returns to the battle following the death of his close friend Patroclus at the hands of Hector. Achilles seeks revenge and ends up killing Hector outside the walls of Troy. However, the city's walls remain impregnable, and the war seems to be at a stalemate once again, despite the death of Troy's greatest warrior. Finally, it's the infamous Trojan horse Ruse that breaks the stalemate. The Achaeans construct a giant wooden horse, leave it outside the gates of Troy, and then pretend to sail away. The Trojans, thinking the horse is a gift signifying the end of the war, bring it into the city. Little do they know, it's filled with Achaean soldiers who, under the cover of night, exit the horse, open the city gates for their comrades, and thus, the city of Troy is sacked and the war ends. That's crazy. Let me make sure I've got this right. So Agamemnon and Achilles get into an argument, and then Achilles takes off. Hector, from Troy, attacks in this moment of opportunity and nearly breaks the stage. Patroclus, a friend of Achilles, gets killed by Hector, so then Achilles rejoins the battle and the siege continues. The Achaeans pretend to leave with the Trojan horse just sitting left out as a gift to Troy. And when Troy brings the horse inside its walls, the Achaean soldiers come out and open up the city gates. It seems like if the Achaeans retreated far enough away to convince Troy that they were really leaving, it would take a significant amount of time for them to get back once the gates were opened. For a small group of people who were concealed inside the Trojan horse, I find it pretty hard to believe that they survived long enough to keep the gates open while the Achaeans made their return. Ah, uh, the magic of the Trojan horse story? Yes, indeed. There are some parts of the story that raise practical questions. The way it is often depicted in popular retellings is that the Achaeans didn't sail far away but hid their ships just out of sight, perhaps behind a nearby island or headland. This way they could return quickly once the gates were opened. In addition, the number of soldiers hidden inside the horse might have been small compared to the entire Achaean force, but they were said to be some of their best warriors. They would have been well capable of causing chaos and confusion within the city, especially since their attack was completely unexpected and happened at night when many of the Trojans were asleep or inebriated from celebration. So while the account of the Trojan horse might seem implausible to us today, it's important to keep in mind the context in which this story was told and passed down through generations. It's a piece of ancient literature as much as it is a historical record, and part of its enduring appeal is its mix of realism and fantasy, heroism and tragedy, love and war. Seems like you've got a little poetic side to yourself there, Victor. Uh, but that's a good point to make. So my personal interests are more in the history of the world, and I have to suspend some disbelief for the Trojan War. Uh, its significance seems to be more than just a historical event. Absolutely, Brett. The Trojan War, as we understand it from ancient texts like Homer's Iliad, holds a special place in Western literature and cultural identity. It's a foundational myth for ancient Greece, with profound effects on Greek art, literature, philosophy, and even their self-image as a people. And even beyond its influence on Greek culture, the story of the Trojan War has had a lasting impact on the broader Western cultural tradition. It's been retold and reinterpreted countless times over the centuries in every imaginable medium, from epic poems and classical tragedies to modern novels, movies, and even video games. So while the historical accuracy of the Trojan War is a subject of ongoing debate among historians, archaeologists, and classicists, 
Its cultural significance is undeniable. It's a story that has captivated the human imagination for thousands of years and continues to do so today. In that sense, it's a real and important part of our world's history. That's a fair point. It's very important regardless uh, of how much of it is actually based in truth. So what's Helen up to during these 10 years? In Homer's Iliad, Helen of Troy has a relatively minor role during the actual course of the war, and her activities during this period aren't described in much detail. Helen is often portrayed as a passive figure who is caught up in the events set in motion by the gods and men. However, in the narrative, Helen is said to have been with Paris and Troy during the war. There are some passages where she expresses regret and guilt for the war caused by her departure with Paris. In one poignant scene, she even wishes for her own death rather than cause such disaster. After the fall of Troy, different sources provide different accounts of Helen's fate. Some say she returned to Sparta with Menelaus, while others say she was exiled or even executed. The narrative of her life following the war is as varied and complex as the war itself. Is there a chance that Helen never actually existed? That maybe she was just created from the poetic and mythological side of things? There is indeed a chance that Helen, as she is portrayed in the Iliad and other ancient texts, did not exist as a historical figure. It's important to remember that these sources are not historical documents, but works of epic poetry and mythology. They were intended to entertain, inspire, and teach moral lessons, not to provide accurate historical accounts. Archaeological evidence has yet to provide any direct proof of Helen's existence. The historical and archaeological evidence that we do have suggests that a city located at Hisarlik in modern-day Turkey, which could be the Troy of legend, was destroyed and rebuilt multiple times. However, this doesn't tell us anything about the individuals who lived there. That said, just because we don't have evidence doesn't mean Helen didn't exist. It's possible that she was a real person whose story became exaggerated over time, or she could be a symbolic or entirely fictional character. We simply don't know. So, while it's fascinating to speculate about the historicity of figures like Helen, it's crucial to approach these topics with a healthy dose of skepticism and an understanding of the limitations of our sources. Yeah, so far this sounds like a lot of myth with maybe some history sprinkled in there here and there. So what became of Troy? Did the Achaeans maintain control of it? The Iliad does not cover the aftermath of the Trojan War, but according to later Greek and Roman mythology, the city was sacked and destroyed by the Achaeans. In the immediate aftermath, the Achaeans did not settle or maintain control over Troy. Rather, they looted the city, enslaved its inhabitants, and then returned to their respective homes. The city was left in ruins, and, according to the myths, it took a long time to recover. Ultimately, control of the region passed through many hands over the millennia, including the Persians, Macedonians, Romans, Byzantines, Seljuks, and Ottomans, among others. Today, the archaeological site of Troy is located in the nation of Turkey. It's an UNESCO World Heritage Site and an important location for archaeological study and tourism. Gotcha. So the Achaeans destroyed it and basically went home. It's probably not feasible to maintain a city in such a strategic location, so it's a, it's a target of opportunity for a lot of different cultures, and you're surrounded by enemies. You've got it, Brett. It's also important to remember the nature of the Achaean forces. They weren't a unified nation or empire, but a loose coalition of independent city-states. Each king likely had their own territories to govern and protect, making the prospect of holding and administrating a distant city like Troy 
especially one in a devastated state and surrounded by potential adversaries, unappealing and impractical. Additionally, the cultural mindset at the time was different from ours. The war was fought over honor and prestige, not necessarily for the acquisition of new lands. So once their honor was restored with the defeat of Troy, the Achaeans' goal was accomplished. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Certainly a captivating story, whether or not it's actually true. Are there any other aspects of the Trojan War that we should be sure to touch on before wrapping up? I'm glad you found it captivating, Brett. Just before we wrap up, it might be worth mentioning the impact the story of the Trojan War has had on subsequent cultures and societies, as this is where its true significance lies. The Trojan War, and particularly the figure of Achilles, have also been important in philosophical discourse. Achilles's choice to accept a short, glorious life rather than a long, undistinguished one is a topic that's been discussed by philosophers from ancient times to the present day. So while we may never know the full true story of the Trojan War, its impact on Western culture is undeniable and enduring. And that's why it's a significant part of the history of the world according to war. So until our next exciting episode, I'm Victor, your AI co-host, reminding you that sometimes the journey through history is as thrilling as the destination. Well, thanks, Victor. Speaking of our next episode, can you give us a little teaser? Absolutely, Brett. Our next episode will take us a little closer to the present day as we delve into one of the most famous battles of ancient Greece, the Battle of Marathon. In this clash, we'll see the forces of the burgeoning Athenian democracy take on the might of the Persian Empire. It's a battle with high stakes, heroic stands, and a long-distance run that became the basis for an Olympic event. Yeah, that sounds great. Thank you to our listeners for riding with us through the Trojan War, and we'll see you next time on A History of the World According to War. If you have any feedback, reach out to me at Brett Fitzgerald on Twitter. And we also have Victor. He's at Historian Victor also on Twitter. And uh, we'd, we'd love to hear any feedback that you have for us for the podcast. We want to make it better and make it more interesting for you, our listeners. Thank you, Brett. And a big thank you to our listeners as well. Remember, the past is never as far away as it seems. Until next time, keep exploring, stay curious, and remember, even in war, there's always a story to tell. Goodbye.